and welcome to another Writer's Bookshelf with me, David Driver, brought to you by the Gingerlicious Company Presents. Goodness me, it is, of course, you're listening to this, it is, of course, another Tuesday evening. And the weather, goodness me, I always repeat myself, it's um, it's still a little bit rainy, it's still a little bit rainy in sunny Yorkshire, Silsden and surrounding areas to... Um, be a little bit more to be a little bit more precise shall we say but goodness it is it's getting to the end of uh, well this will be the last the last podcast of february and then of course we're into march time flies about another four weeks hopefully in the uk things things will get um a little bit lighter the uh, the clocks altering the clocks um Altering the clock, so now an hour forward. So we'll get a little. Hopefully, will uh, things will be uh, things will be looking up. Well, once again, good evening to uh, or hello, should I say? You can tell when I'm recording this now. I've said good evening, and you could be listening to it at any any time in the in the world, really. But UK time is um, is mainly what I am uh, I am concerned with. So good evening and hello and welcome anyone in the UK to all you all you fans in the UK and that is England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales and I have to say good evening to anyone listening in in Prague, the Czech Republic. We've got a listener in Poland. We've got many, many listeners and as usual thank you to all the people listening in the USA. I think you might be you could be somewhere between five hours and more behind. But once again, thank you for your uh, continued for your continued support it's all good good stuff indeed and i'm going to say now before i uh, before i forget if you want to find out um a little bit more about me get yourself over to the pod the podcast you're listening to the podcast david goodness me i've only got a drink of tea get yourselves over to the website daviddriverauthor.com and anyone listening for the first time, thank you to all the lovely ladies, and I do mean lovely ladies, who attended the writing course, the creative writing course on Saturday, or at Craven College, Craven College, Skipton. Brilliant stuff indeed. So if you have connected, a warm welcome to you. I've got some brilliant guests lined up, and it just seems to be March, well, not March, but uh, January. January and February are sort of slow months, if you like, a little bit dark, a little bit cold. But from February onwards, February and uh, March, let's say, March and April, it, uh, the guests will be coming to the studio. I've got some brilliant guests lined up. And don't forget the radio plays or the podcast plays, as our radio podcast plays are, uh, are underway. The brilliant Mr. John Spence is... Um, He's working on that. I found, I haven't found, well, I have found them on the shelf. I've dug out a few books with a horror fantasy theme. Um, I'm going to share a, sto- a short story with you uh, this evening. And it's from a collection of my short stories called Ripskillian Tales. And this one goes by the name of Sunflowers for Laura. It's going to take about um, you can hear me creasing. Well, not creasing. I was getting the pages ready. 
it's um, it should take about ten minutes. So hopefully you'll uh, you guys or you lovely guys and girls will be uh, will be happy with uh, with that. Some sunflowers for Laura. Let's see. Let's see what you think. Um, let's see what you think about it. Life's been hard in the city these last few months. Hard in the city of Roth. We had won the war, defeated the invading Vemish, and everything seemed good for a short while. But then, there's not much use for a soldier, not much work, when the war is over. It's difficult to start to learn how to farm or run a market store. Life's tougher, life's tougher still when the king raises taxes to pay for his glorious victory. People close ranks, so to speak, look after their own, forget who kept them free and allow them to speak their native tongue. I'll never forget that summer morning, blue sky, cloudless, flowers blooming, birds singing, dressed in black leather boots, brown leather trousers and matching tunics. Our clean-pressed white shirts bore the king's twin eagle crest. We marched towards the city gates. Cheers, applause and shouts of victory filled the air. And there she stood. Ella, my wife, and Laura, our daughter. Both beautiful. My life. My reason for living. Ella waved. Smiling, blue eyes full of love, soft, long red hair adorned with daisies and standing at her side, an exact image of her mother apart from her sunflower hair. Laura, our four-year-old daughter, she was holding a small sunflower between her tiny white hands, twirling it, smelling it. A smile spread across, across her innocent, warm, fresh face. I sparkled. Daddy, Daddy, Daddy! Laura's voice engulfed me with happiness. Waving the flower like a flag, she spoke again. Daddy, 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 I love you. Marching in unison, swords at our sides, muskets slung over shoulders, we moved forward. Stopping while the mighty gates opened, Salutes were made and cheers erupted. All our eyes met and I mimed the words, I love you both. Ruffling Laura's hair, I pretended to steal her nose. She gave me the sunflower, which was quickly tucked away inside my tunic. Belching open with dust, groans and creaks, the twenty-foot-high wooden gates revealed the striking landscape. Lush green grass, red, yellow, pink and white flowers. Mighty oaks, elms and beech housed the denizens of the woodland. Evergreens dotted the slopes, becoming more in number higher up the trails. And beyond, the orange, black and grey of the mountains were capped with the occasional wisp of a cloud. The calm and smooth flow of the river relaxed our minds as we began the long journey. Clear, fresh water glistened under the red, full red, simmering heat of the sun. 
that was the beginning. The start of the long marches, hot days, cool nights and new friendships. Captain and Cook weren't bad, so at least we didn't have to eat typical army slop after listening to some rich, high-ranking officer's son. Captain Henry Fariner had wealth, but saw life at our level. Charlie Peddler, or Chicken Lips, as he became known, could make anything taste good, and we always seemed able to march a few extra miles on what we ate. Good old Chicken Lips. I think he's dead now. Got his name when someone cracked a joke about how he could even make the lips of a chicken taste good. Good shot too of the musket, musket and didn't hesitate to put the blade in into the vemish. It was said that every soldier always kept an eye out for Charlie in battle. Rather than the flag bearer, anyone could pick up the king's banner. We kept going, survived, lived to fight another day, drove the invaders back. This was our land, not those red-eyed savages from across the waters. Sharp features, dark-skinned, vast numbers, their blood always seemed thicker and redder when it ran. Good friends were made and good friends were lost during the three years we fought in the King's army. I even saved the captain's life twice and said he could do with more men like me. All through the long bloody three years I kept the sunflower Laura had given me. Towards the end of the first week it began to wilt. Farina saw me looking at the dying flower. Asked it where it asked where it, where it had come from, took it away and pressed it, then returned my precious yellow gift. He said he had a daughter back home the same age as Laura, smiled and returned to the officer's tents. Victory eventually became ours. We even burnt some of the ships, sinking them into the depths of the sea. Only a thousand at the most survived and they fled. The men of wrath returned that autumn as heroes, loved, revered, unmarried soldiers soon wore, and the rest of us held our loved ones again, including me. It felt so good to hold them once more. Crying, looking, touching, I couldn't believe how much Laura had changed, how much she had grown. Ella looked as beautiful as ever, no difference from the day I left. That night, a soft, smooth skin felt good against mine. The scent of her body, the sound of her voice, the touch of her lips, all soothed the empty, blood-stained nights. I awoke that first morning to the smell of fresh bread, bacon and eggs. Ella smiled. Laura jumped on the bed, talking endlessly. As I ached. We still lived in a small cottage next to the bakery and life seemed normal again. The war was over, money was plentiful and I had three years to catch up on. There's not much to spend army pay on when you just sleep, march, eat and fight. Along with a small share of the Vemish spoils and unexpected bonus, we considered ourselves quite wealthy. New boots for me, along with cotton shirts and leather waistcoats and beautiful dresses for my girls. I was offered a job gamekeeping for one of the rich landowners. 
the fresh air was good. I wasn't a bad shot and also helped sort out the poachers and rogues who wandered onto the land. But eight months down the line, things changed and we started to pay the price of war. Victory and glory belonged to the king, but the royal purse was empty. He, need, he needed to rebuild, strengthen his defences, replace lost troops and confirm his wealth and power in the land. Money was needed and slowly but surely, taxes were raised. People's pockets were soon drained, work dwindled and unrest spread. The, the rich landowners no longer needed me. My hands were not for farming and the market traders paid very little. We lost the cottage, we couldn't pay the rent and moved into a small room above the bakery. Ella looked tired, Laura's clothes were tattered and sometimes her wooden vase had to go empty. Laura had always loved flowers, especially sunflowers. They always grew in the numbers during the summer in the fields by the river. During this time, the vase never went empty. Always a yellow circle of petals, always a smiling face of happiness. And that's how the summer went. But along with the rent, bread, meat, clothes and everything else, the precious sunflowers carried a heavy price. Daisies and dandelions replaced the favourite bringer of endless smiles, as we couldn't afford them. Even flowers such as these were seen as a wealth provider, and guards were posted around the fields. Unrest spread, violence grew, and the dark corners of the city became blood-stained. Thieves and murderers were hung, lesser crimes received a severe flogging, and at times the army seemed a fairer place. Whilst Laura slept, Ella and I talked. Should we go? But where? How? We have no money. And when only my eyes were, my eyes were open, I lay holding the pressed sunflower, the occasional tear escaping. Sometimes I stood looking at them. Sometimes I looked beyond the walls and imagined better things. But always I returned to now. Returned to now, and at that present moment, it wasn't good. Everything, everything seemed to fall apart in just one day. Events, people, places, all seemed wrong. After breakfast, I took a walk through the market, hoping to find something that wasn't there. All seven colours of the rainbow filled the flowers on the stall, along with twice as many scents. Sat there, right in the middle. Sunflowers stared at me. But it was simple. No money, no flowers. Then I saw the leather purse. A fat, wealthy merchant moved two steps ahead and my eye caught a snatcher disappearing into the crowd. He must have cut it loose, fumbled, and then left before the guards seized him. As I straightened the words, Sir, I, I think you dropped this, touched my lips. But the merchant turned, took in, drew his own conclusions, and the guards grabbed my arms. Things moved quickly, and before long I was there. There in the ten-foot square cell, cold stone floor and walls, straw in the corner for a bed, and a wooden bucket for my personal use. 
black iron bars caged me in. The dimly lit passage faded into the distance and torches flickered in sconces. A small barred window looked out onto the yard below. Voices echoed, orders scented, and cries of pain sounded as certain inmates received a good kicking. The pleasures of Bennett Jail were always in abundance. My name is William Birch, 28 years old. I'd served six years in the King's Army and would serve only about a week in the cells before being hung by the neck. Six, eight days at the most, that's all it takes. Once you, once you were arrested, the King and his council met to discuss you, talked about you and decided your fate. You just sat and waited. Waited till they came and led you out to the gallows in the square below. Special guests were taken out to the crossroads to swing and when they, they stopped kicking they became a feast of the crows. But at least you were hung in the square. Your loved ones could collect and bury you. No one ever went free. Not any commoner that is. One man walked through one man, though, a rapist. Rumoured had it he was related to the king's cousin and went away to lands in the north. Ella and Laura came to the yard on the first day and the second. Both were dressed in their in their best and Laura, Laura was carrying sunflowers. My face pressed against the bars as I looked down but my cell was three floors up so voices didn't carry too well. Fingers reached through, waving. Ella did the same and Laura held the flowers aloft. The following days became empty, as if I'd already met the gallows. No sign of my wife or daughter. Even the third floor jailer, Matthew Cork, had suddenly disappeared. Matthew Cork was not a bad man. Mid-fifties, one eye, bad breath and portly. Served in the army himself many years ago. Said he had a knack of knowing a good man from a bad one. Cork seemed to like me for some reason. He knew I was innocent. Sorry, lad, he said. I know you're a thief. I know you're no thief. I can see it in your eyes. But, nah, a commoner won't walk. Before he'd vanished, Cork had stood staring through the bars. The, the bars. Passed me, several passed me several cigars and a bottle of brandy. Smiled, turned and walked away with his usual gait. Another cell door opened. Two, maybe three men rushed in. A man cried out as a beating started. Cork had said there had been another murder. Closing my eyes, I was thankful I hadn't had the pleasure of the beating. The only conversation I had now was with myself. Still no sign of Cork had been replaced. A deaf mute brought my food now, stared, then left. The second cigar was good and the brandy excited my senses as it flowed down my throat. My eyes were bleary and kept closing for minutes at a time and sleep was just about upon me. Oh, never mind, who cares, I thought. I wished I could hold them both again, hear their voices and see their smiles. Ella, Laura, what are you doing? Please, 
be with me in this cell. My eyes slowly opened, narrow slits, suddenly springing open, wild, bewildered. A tall, cloaked figure stood over me within the cell. Backing away, not standing, I reached for the far wall. My eyes kept with those of the man I recognised. Black robes, red cord trimmed the edges, pristine black leather boots, sharp hawk-like features, grey swept back hair, lightly covering a balding head. Piercing brown eyes stared out from the pale face. The gold ring of the order of prayer sat on the third finger of the left hand. No muscle weighed on the weak frame, but this old man carried power and fear within wrath. Oh yes, I had seen this man before. On the day we marched off to war, he had blessed us, told us we fought in the name of the order and faith. He had visited various camps before battle, repeating the same words. Only the king and possibly several other men carried more power than the head of the order of prayer, the true and only religion. Every condemned man received a visit from the order before they died, whether it was a novice or higher. And none came higher than the visitor I had received, High Priest Aspin Bede. Feared, loathed, hated, revered, he now stood over me, the ex-soldier. After three hard swallows, I found a little spit and slowly gathered my words. Sir, I, I mean High Priest. Bede just stood and stared. I've tried to be a good man, love and protect my family. Continuing, I told of my family, my time in the army, and my loyalty to my king. I told of the hardships I'd faced on my return, protested my innocence, but accepted my fate. Aspen Bede never spoke, he never moved, never showed any emotion. He just stood, staring, fingering his thin moustache with a forefinger. As the condemned war hero continued, which was me, a thought came to mind about a saying in the slums among the thieves. We're in the cell and the visitor is bead. Say your prayers, the gallows call. Your neck will stretch for the greed. I must have fallen asleep again. Eyes flew open and thoughts raced. As scrambling to my feet, I realised I was alone in the cell. Bede was gone. Reaching the window, my eyes scanned the yard below. Laura stood alone, holding sunflowers. My heart raced, footsteps sounded following by, followed by a voice. I snapped out of my trance. Birch! 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 Matthew Cork spoke. Turning around, our eyes met and I replied, Matthew! Matthew! Aye, that's me, lad. Come to get me then? Well, never mind. We both knew the outcome. I spoke to Bede last night. Bede? What are you talking about, Bede? Too much brandy. I knew I should have drunk it myself. He came last night to see me. I spoke with him. Never thought I'd see it. I never thought I'd see a commoner go free. I stood and stared. Court continued. You must have been a damn good soldier, you. I said that you were a good man. Yes, you 
you are going to swing. There's no doubt about that. No two ways. Until Lord Fariner turned up. But, uh, Lord Fariner? Yeah. Aye, lad. Lord Fariner. But you remember. You remember him as Captain Fariner. He spoke up. Right, Bosch. His father died last year and he got the lot. The land, the money, the title, all down the southwest. Lots of powerful folk have been about the last few days, talking, sorting things out. Lord Farriner stood up and he spoke to King, said more men like you were needed, said all that when he found out about you in jail. Told the King you saved him in more than once on the battlefield and he oiled you. The King listened and Farriner said he needed you on his land to help with rogues and poachers. You and your family can travel with him, leave the city. You're free, Birch. You're a free man now. You can go. Emotion swept over me. Tears welled. Legs weakened and I became dizzy. Cork opened the cell door, entered and placed a hand on my shoulder and spoke. You best get gone, lad, before... I get myself a bad name. Coughing and laughing, my thoughts raced. Y- yes, I go. Thank you, Matthew. But, but what? Um, no, you're right. It was probably too much. It was too much brandy. A, a dream. I don't know. As the words came, I eyed the empty bottle. Leaving the cell, I took several steps and then turned and spoke. S- so, Matthew, where, where have you been these these past days? Aye, lad, I never told you, did I? He took me over to see the king, to his private jail. I had to watch a special prisoner. The king's been after this murderer for years. All lords were there, all the ones that have a say. Lots of scandal. They found him guilty. Good, the foul scum. And he hung him, good and proper. Hung him at the crossroads for what he did. Yesterday morning, he killed lots of people. Always women, always girls. You won't believe this, lad. So just let me tell you. The man who swung, Aspen Bede. Aspen Bede, murderer. Aspen Bede? Staggering, almost fainting. I, I, I reached for the wall. That's right. I caught him knife in hand. Covered in blood. Victims barely cold. Over by a bakery. Four days ago. Mother and daughter. Little and dressed in pink. Holding sunflowers. Ooh. So I do hope that you enjoyed that. And I... I threw in a few little voices there, a little bit unrehearsed there, obviously my voice, and a little bit of a Yorkshire voice. I always seem to go into um, into that that mood, into that mode of, of voice. A short story there. I'll tell you what I'm going to do while I'm in the mood. I've also, I have a few little book reviews because I'm just looking and I've found again, I have a habit of, um, not a hobbit, a habit, I... Um, I have a habit, I've mentioned it before probably, we go down to London, various bookshops, bring them all back, go to Waterstones in Leeds or 
you know, sometimes local bookshops to get them, bring books back, go to Whitbit, and sometimes, I, I'm not saying you can buy too many books, but sometimes you don't always read them because you can get distracted and you buy one book and you start reading this and you start reading that. And this one is from London, and I completely and utterly forgot about it. And it's saying, it reads like the script notes for American Psycho, The Holiday Abroad, um, Guardian Say. And it's called In the Miso Soup. And it's a Japanese-type malarkey thing. And goodness, why haven't you read it, David? Um, it's telling us there is no shortage of terror, of terrors in this novel. Atmosphere predominates and the claustrophobia of the back streets of Tokyo is intensely imagined. Daily Telegraph tells us that. Beyond one terribly shocking scene, My Soul is a thoughtful novel about loneliness, lack of identity, and cultural and moral corruption. If you like noir, My Soul is dark enough for those who want to expand their exposure to Japanese culture beyond sushi, comics, and video games. USA Today say. What does Entertainment Weekly say? Oozes darkness and ambiguity and reads like a cross-Pacific bullet train. And um, final review, Kirkus reviews, a blistering portrayal, uh, sorry, a blistering portrait of contemporary Japan um, and decadence wrapped up within one of the most savage thrillers since Silence or the Lambs. Shocking and gripping what is it all about well i'm going to give you now a little bit of the old synopsis let's have a look um it goes on to say it's just before new year and frank an overweight american tourist has hired kenji to take him on a guided tour of tokyo's nightlife but frank's behavior is so odd that kenji begins to entertain a horrible suspicion. His client may, in fact, have murderous desires. Although Kenji is far from innocent himself, he unwillingly descends with Frank into an inferno of evil from which only his 16-year-old girlfriend, Jun, can possibly save him. So I will let you know what is happening there. And I've also got, just bear with me, I've got, I tell you what I found, Edgar Allan Poe, The Complete Tales and Poems, which I don't think um, anyone, I would say, it's still as classic stories and poems from the arch priest of Gothic horror, um, The Fall of the House of, um, The Fall of the House of Usher, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, um, The Pit and the Pendulum, and the gold bug, some of the most famous tales of terror, the most macabre detective stories ever written, acknowledged master of suspense, and Poe was also a poet, and as his stories, uh, as his stories continue um, to mesmerise um, reader after reader, and all the classics are in there, so the final one, just bear with me, in fact is the final Two, I tell you what I do like reading. Um, this, this is from Whitby, I know it is, because they're little classic, little, they're not the Penguin classics, they are the little sort of small hardback books you can get with the, with the uh, removable um, paper covers. And I always seem to end up buying the most obscure books because this one's called The Adventures of Arsene Lupin, Lupin 
Gentleman Thief, and it's by Maurice LeBlanc. Um, under what name, under what disguise, was this famous Asine Lupin Lurking? Good stuff. Okay, what does it say here? It says, Nine Dazzling Stories featuring Asine Lupin, the charming and artful burglar, who is both a perfect gentleman and a master of disguise. As the as oh, at the outset, Lupin is arrested, but not not one to be troubled by the law. His engineers his own incredible escape. Free again, Lupin conjures up a series of ingenious heists and audacious escapades, finishing up with a brief encounter with none other than Sherlock Holmes. Action-packed and wonderfully entertaining. These stories and many more by French writer Maurice Leblanc, uh, Leblanc, Leblanc, goodness me, um, continues to delight readers around the world. Um, and the final one, I read this for a while, Robin Hobb, Ship of Magic, book, book one, The Live Ship Traders. Um, it's quite an old one now, but it says, promises to be a truly extraordinary saga and I'll try and give you um right let's see let me give you a little bit of synopsis good stuff indeed um it says that wizard wood a sentient wood the most precious commodity in the world like many other legendary wares it comes only from the rain river wilds but how can one trade with the rain river traders when only a live ship fashioned from wizard wood can negotiate the perilous waters of the Rain River. Rare and valuable, a live ship will quicken only when three family members from successive generations have died on board. The live ship, um, Vivacia, is about to undergo her quickening and Althea's father is carried to a deck in his death throes. Althea waits for the ship that she loves more than anything in the world to awaken, only to discover that the Vivacia has been signed away in her father's will to her brutal brother-in-law, Kyle Haven. Others plot to win or steal a live ship. The Paragon, known by many as a Parahani, went mad, turned, um, turned and drowned his crew. Now he lies blind, lonely and broken on a deserted beach. But greedy men have designs to restore him to sail the waters of the Rain River once more. And it also tells us that Robin Hobb was born in California in 1952 and majored in communications at Denver University, Colorado. And she is the author of the usually successful Farseer trilogy, which is set in the same world as the live ship traders. And she's currently at work on the second book in this new series. That's what it's saying there. But I believe a lot more of them have been written. Well, sadly, I hope it's the end of another podcast. If I've done a few book reviews, just old and new. Doesn't matter if they're new books, old books, existing books, whatever. I just take them off the bookshelf. They might be at home. I might have newly bought them. Someone might have given me them. Might be down here at the Gingerlicious Studios. And a little bit of a short story to wet your whistle. Once again, thank you for listening. I do hope that you have enjoyed this episode. And as I always say, if you like what you have been listening to, then maybe 
download some more of the episodes, tell your friends, spread the word, and continue to support the Writer's Bookshelf podcast. Brilliant, brilliant stuff indeed. And indeed, if you are a poet, writer, weaving your words of magic, get in touch. All details on the website and you could be an you could be a guest on the show. And I'm going to say goodbye for now, and I will certainly be speaking to you on the next episode of the Writer's Bookshelf. Gingerlicious Company presents. Goodbye for now, and take care.